Thank you. It is good to be back in the heartland. It's a, it's a little flatter here, but it's still very, very nice. And uh, having come from this area, I just, I, I want to start really just in, in gratitude and saying thank you. And I know that um, you guys are a very generous church. You have a lot of people around the world who could probably stand in this very spot and express the same or more gratitude to you. And I just, I want you to know that when I read through passages like Corinthians and Paul is coming down, and we often talk about this like joyful and cheerful giving thing and that, that little piece of your worship that you do in giving. And sometimes it's only like a 90 second, you know, part of your Sunday or it's the boxes that are in the back or it's an automated thing that happens. That little tiny thing that you do faithfully and generously means everything to us. Like, we don't, we don't get to do what we're doing without that. When I read those passages, when Paul is talking about going into Corinth and he's gonna, he's gonna receive this act of grace, it, it's literally a tangible expression of love that comes out of this place and spreads all over the world. In one tiny little corner of the world where we happen to live, Southwest Connecticut, I usually describe it to people like this. If you, if you put your right hand up and your thumb down, we're in the thumb. That's where we are. We're that little part of Connecticut that New York State kind of wraps up and around and we're kind of like the New York metro area, but we're also in New England. And there are people there, Paul says this, this small act of grace reaps a harvest of gratitude to the glory of God. And I just want you to know that these little seeds of generosity and grace that you guys sow faithfully make people like me and, and people like the, those we're connecting with in Connecticut extremely grateful. We say thank you and we give glory to God because of you. Same way that the people in Jerusalem would have done with the people in Corinth. We feel that way towards you guys here at Connect Church in Washington, Illinois. Your partnership and generosity empower us to generate this harvest of gratitude all to the glory of God. And we are, we're coming up on about a year having lived out in Connecticut. And it is kind of strange for me. I had kind of a deja vu driving up 74 from Bloomington over to here this morning. I was like, it was about a year ago that I was here and we were doing some video stuff and kind of interviewing and talking about, we had packed up all these boxes in our house and we were about to go out to Connecticut and get started with this church plant in New England. And, and I just remember all these uncertain things. Dave would ask me questions. I'd be like, I don't know that, Dave. I, I, I really don't. I'm, I'm very... Uh, we're open to anything, it could be anything. And I just grabbed onto something that came from Connect actually. Connecting people to God and one another is something that has stayed with me for the last year. And we're regularly praying that that's what we're able to do, to connect people with God and one another. And here we are now about a year later, we just last month had like our first gathering of kind of like a core team of people, some households and some people are starting to become a part of this faith community that we're starting. We've had one gathering, we've lived there for a year, and this big question keeps coming up, like, are we a church yet? You know, like, and you start talking to people, especially in the context we're in, like, it doesn't, we don't quite fit, like, the church paradigm yet. We're still very much in, like, launch phase or kind of startup mode. And I keep asking this question, like, are we a church? And that's really what I wanna talk about today. Like, what do we define as church? Like, what is church, because by many measures and by many assumptions about church, I'm not sure we actually have been a church or are a church yet, which is very hard for me because then I have to look in the mirror and be like, am I a pastor? Like, who am I? If we're not a church and I'm not a pastor, like, who am I? 
And so I've been kind of spending a lot of time over the last year in the gospels. What, what does it mean to be the church? And what does it mean to be a Christian, the child of God? And who are we separate from all of the cultural assumptions about what church is and who we're supposed to be as Christians? And what I wanna talk about today is that I have become convinced over the last year that the church is built one table at a time. The church is built one table at a time. And that's really all I wanna do today is talk with you about tables, the tables that we find ourselves at time and time again. And there are a lot of authors and people who are starting to write more about this and kind of focus in on this, but it's really interesting to me. If you think about like massive figures in history, like Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar, or Plato or Socrates, Confucius, Buddha, like you could go through all these different people. How many stories do we know of them sitting down at a table and eating with people? I mean, we assume they did it, right? But how much material do we have in the history books about their mealtime interactions? Something about Jesus that's just fascinating is how much biographical, historical material we have about his mealtimes. Something about the way he gathered with people around tables stood out to his biographers. So much so that I would argue we probably have more mealtime material about Jesus than any other leader throughout history. So what was he doing around the table that was so influential, that was so impacting? I think he was building the church and that's kind of the application if you like to just fast forward to the application. If you've got a table, you can build the church. And it doesn't even have to be your table. You could borrow it from some restaurant. You don't even have to literally own a table. You just have to be a person who from time to time finds themselves at a table. If you ever are at a table, you can build the church. And I think it's God's preferred method for doing it. I think it's how he trained us, taught us, modeled for us to build his congregation, his people. Matthew, if you read the book of Matthew, and that's really where we're gonna be today, Matthew chapter nine specifically. But if you read through the book of Matthew, you find at the outset, you have Jesus' birth narrative, right? Then you see Jesus begin this public ministry and he goes out into the wilderness and he battles the enemy and he comes out of that. And then Matthew gives us chapters five through seven, which is the Sermon on the Mount, some of Jesus' most powerful and influential teachings. And then after chapter seven, from chapters eight through 10, Matthew gives us 10 miraculous stories. And right in the middle of that, in Matthew chapter nine, Matthew tells us about how he started following Jesus. He says, I was a tax collector. You know, in the modern world, he'd be kind of like the IRS agent, an accountant, an Enneagram 5 probably, an introvert, I'm guessing. A numbers guy. Wasn't well beloved by his community. In fact, he didn't really have a place within his community, but he was watching as Jesus was doing this ministry in the northern parts of Galilee. And I don't know, maybe he was taking notes right away or maybe he just sat down later and started putting all this stuff together. But he tells this little story in chapter nine. He says, one day, Jesus, this guy out of Nazareth, this great teacher who was delivering these powerful teachings and who was doing these miraculous works, this guy, he walks past me and he says, Matthew, you follow me. And that very night, Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel tells us that very night, Matthew decides to host a party at his house. And that's where we're gonna zone in and focus for today. What happened at Matthew's house that night? We know that Jesus reclined around the table 
And there were a bunch of different groups of people there. One group, we call them tax collectors and sinners. They were the uninviteds. They didn't really have a place in a lot of the religious world at the time. There was another group of people, the Pharisees. They were very intrigued by what Jesus was doing, very religious, very kind of high order structure, hierarchical people. They wanted to make sure that Jesus' teachings were all doctrinally sound. And then there were people that we identify as Jesus' disciples, his followers. And all of them find themselves at this table. And the Pharisees are kind of yapping like, why, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he eating with these people? Why is he up here in the northern parts of Galilee? Why isn't he doing all the things a teacher, a rabbi is supposed to do? And Jesus gives this powerful quotation from the book of Hosea. He says, I want you to learn something. I want you to know and understand what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The first thing I wanna know comes to us from Matthew chapter nine, verses 12 through 13. I wanna read it for you and I want you to see it in front of you. When Jesus heard all the chatter amongst the Pharisees, who are asking his disciples about why he eats and does the things he does. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When we're defining what a church is, what it means to be a Christian, is it, is it rituals? Is it rituals that make us who we are? Because if that's the case, then I don't yet have a church. We don't have a lot of the rituals and the practices and the assumptions of what we think makes a church. I'm not a real pastor. If being a Christian and being a church is about rituals, is it about rituals? Or is it about a relationship? When God says to Hosea the prophet in the Old Testament, I desire, I just want you to pause with that for a second and think. God, benevolent being beyond space and time, the ultimate creator, the author of life, the one who currently is sustaining the entirety of the cosmos, God desires. where he longs for something. He has an inclination toward. There are things that delight him. There are things he takes pleasure in. There are things that he himself desires. God has desires, just like you and I have desires. We're made in his image. You know what it feels like to want something. The Hebrew word has the idea of God bending towards something. There are certain things that he bends toward. There are certain things that he's drawn to magnetically. It's almost like within his nature, and within the created order that he has, there's this bond that sometimes trying to come together. God has desires. What is it that God desires? It is not the slaughtering of animals. It is not fancy priestly clothes. It is not a big, beautiful building with curtains and artwork that would make your mouth just drop because it is so beautiful or ornate. Those are all good things. They're just not ultimate things. What God desires more than anything is relationship. I desire mercy. You gotta learn this. You gotta learn this. Because if you don't, 
you're going to be inviting people to the wrong thing. You're going to be calling people into rituals, practices, habits, temporary things, not ultimate things. God desires mercy. Listen to how he said it through the prophet Hosea. This was when the people of God, this is so interesting to me. We often think about the Old Testament people of God as like, you know, they probably just, you know, gave themselves over to idols and they weren't really doing what they were supposed to do. But that's not really true. What was happening in the time of the prophets and what you see in most of the prophetic material is that the people were doing exactly what they were told to do with the exception of the relational side of the law. Hosea the prophet says it this way, chapter six, verse one says, come, let us return to the Lord. The New Testament word we would use for that is repent. Let us come back to God for he's torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. My judgment goes forth as the light, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus was looking at this group of people and he says, you got to learn what this means. I desire mercy, steadfast love, relationship. Not the meat market that you're running up here on the altar. Not the fancy clothes that draw a lot of attention to yourselves. And he was saying it, not just about the Old Testament people of God and what we are prone to do, we're prone to become a ritualistic people. He was saying it to those Pharisees that were sitting there at the dinner with him. You gotta learn what this means. Because right here at the table is the Messiah and you are being invited into relationship with him. I don't know about you, if you follow a lot of the new stuff, but being a church person, and particularly being a church person in an area that's not overly welcoming or accommodating to church people, is very interesting because we come across a whole lot of church drama and church trauma. Both of them being very real. You can, can testify to it experientially. I see it, it's all over the news, massive traumatic things that are associated with the church, massive dramatic things that are associated with the church. It reminds me of HAIs. Are you familiar with hospital acquired infections? Sometimes people go to the hospital because they're sick. And while they're at the hospital, they acquire an infection from within the hospital. Sometimes they're lethal, fatal even. I mean, how tragic is that? The place you go to get well ends up becoming the place you get sick. Sometimes those stories spread throughout communities and people will stop going to the hospital because they're afraid or they know somebody who got something there and they're worried that it'll happen to them. I mean, sometimes logically, I think in our scientific modern world, we're like, that's crazy. Why would you not go to the hospital if you were sick? Well, you wouldn't if you were afraid of being infected. I think there's almost a pervasive sense in North America, specifically where we are in the Northeast, but I think it goes all throughout the country where people are becoming more and more afraid to come to the doctor. 
They're afraid of these hospital-acquired infections, which makes temple-oriented growth, ritual-oriented growth, very difficult for the church. There's real drama and trauma that we have to acknowledge in people's lives when it comes to the organization known as the church and how we, they perceive it. But that's not what Jesus was establishing. He says, I want you to know my heart. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the context of the story matters. That's why chapter nine, verse 10 says, Jesus reclined at the table in the house and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. People that are sensing or getting a feel or have experienced hospital acquired infections are not overly interested in coming to the hospital. And yet Jesus is like a mobile clinic. He leaves the hospital He's up in the northern regions of Galilee. He's reclining at tables with these people. These people have found that Jesus is at the table, not the temple. I told you early on in Matthew chapter four, Jesus goes through this sequence of temptations with the enemy. One of the temptations that he faces, chapter four, verses five through seven, is to be brought up to the pinnacle of the temple and to throw himself off of there so that the angels of God will sweep him up in this miraculous way. And all the people will know this is the Messiah because this great miracle, this demonstration has happened at the temple. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how it's gonna work. That's not the way in which God wants to build his kingdom. God's not interested in building a castle. He's interested in building a kingdom. It's not about this temple-centric, temple-oriented thing. The temple is very temporary. In fact, you could destroy it. It's not gonna stand forever. But the table, the table is where relationship is formed. The church is built one table at a time, not one temple for all time. How, this is, people sometimes scratch their head. They're like, how could the Messiah be so mundane? Like, how could he be so blah, so boring? Like, a table? That's all you need to build a church? Religions around the world and throughout history have all been temple-oriented. There's this big, beautiful display of this place with all these rituals associated with it. That's where the gods are, not ours. Ours is reclining at tables. He's at a table in Matthew's house. He's at a table in Zacchaeus' house. He's at a table at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. He's at a table in the upper room. He sets a little table out on the beach and restores Peter after he's resurrected. He's not temple oriented. He goes to the temple, he does things within the temple, but his movement is a table oriented movement. It seems almost too mundane to be godly. And yet the table is far more intimate and far more resilient than the temple. By 70 AD, the Jewish people had no temple left to worship at, with the exception of a few ruined walls where people still to this day go to pray because they think that place is the only place where God dwells. It seems too simple, doesn't it? But think about the intimacy that's formed around a table, the types of conversations that can happen 
And then think about the resiliency of a table. They're literally all over the world. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was building a kingdom, not a castle. And if you had to ask me, which of these two things do you prioritize? I think what we've learned in the midst of the pandemic is that you can have church, you can have church with tables and no temple, but you can't have a church who has a temple with no tables. I mean, how many churches were forced to close over the last few years because they were temple oriented? And once that ability to do that type of ritual was gone, there was no table infrastructure underneath it. People didn't know each other. They weren't connected to God and each other. They were connected to the rituals. I think we've learned that the tables are the essential infrastructure for the temple to have meaning. So who was it that was coming? It's the uninvited. It's the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, the people that nobody notices. Verse chapter nine, verses 10 and 11 go on to say that, or when the Pharisees saw that Jesus was reclining with these people, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he, quotation marks, this supposed rabbi Messiah, why does he eat with them? I mean, you know, you got your own them. I'm sure you do. I do. I for sure have people that are thems in my life. No way am I ever gonna find myself at a table with them. It's just not possible. That's the, that's the audacity of Messiah in this mundane space of the table. The table attracts who the temple repels. And around the table, the uninvited find a seat. Jesus tells us other story. Matthew notes it in chapter 22. Jesus says, I had been making invitations to the right people for hundreds of years to come into the kingdom. I was constantly calling out to them, constantly sending them messengers, constantly sending them save the dates and invitations. And you know what they did with my invitations? They threw them away. Sometimes they even got violent toward the messengers. They didn't want to hear about my coming. They didn't want to hear about the initiation of the new order. They didn't want to hear about the Messiah. And so they rejected the messengers. They rejected my invitations. And so I'm taking my invitations to the margins. I'm taking my invitations to those who have never been invited, to those who are the chronically uninvited. The word for mercy that we're supposed to go and learn from Hosea has a particular disposition. God has a particular bend, a magnetic draw towards the marginalized, toward those who have never been invited to a table, toward those who feel they have no place in the world. Ephesians chapter two, verse four says that God is rich in that kind of mercy. He's rich in it. Like he has storehouses. You ever see like the old cartoon when I was a kid, there was the Scrooge McDuck like storehouses of these gold coins. Sometimes I like to think of each of those gold coins as like God's mercy. He just has so much of it. Like he's never gonna run. Anytime we claim one little coin of mercy, he's not like checking his pockets or his wallet or looking at his like bank statement like, oh, no, 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 we're getting low on that. You're gonna have to call somebody. Like he just is like, it's just so much mercy. There's just so much attention, so much desire, so much delight in those who have never been invited. 
He's rich in mercy. He's sending out his invitations to everybody. There is no he and them. There's just us in the kingdom of God. It's just us. And Jesus looks around and he goes, you know why these people are here? Because they desire it. I don't know about you, but like the last couple of years have just felt like chaos, like craziness. And God doesn't really make any promises to like eliminate the chaos, but he makes a lot of promises about anchoring us in the chaos. He's a sure foundation. He's a refuge. He's a shelter. He's an ever-present help in times of need. And many of us have been running around for a couple of years like chickens with our heads cut off. The world is crazy. The world is crazy. Newsflash, it's always been. There was like a week in the garden that seemed really good. Then you had one bad meal and chaos. Chaos, 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 chaos. I just, and I am so burdened by it, tired by it, worn down by it. You know, I'm, I'm realizing, like, I, I feel like I'm a pretty high capacity person and I'm at the end of it. You know, like I, I sometimes I'll tell people there's like this gauge of stress that you can have in your life. And there's this like zone that's like dangerously overstressed and there's like appropriately stressed and there's like moderately stressed and then there's like no stress. I don't know if I've ever been in this zone. And for the last couple of years, I've been like, you know, like that's just how the last few years have felt. Chaos, chaos. Now look at that and I go, you know what? I, I am sick. Jesus is calling to us. He's calling to me. He's saying, anchor yourself right here with me. Let's recline at the table. Don't be distracted by who else is at the table. It's just you and me. I'm a doctor. Separate from all the hospital-acquired infections. I'm right here at your table, mobile clinic. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary. Come to me if you're heavy laden. Come to me. I will give you rest. When was the last time you were at the table with Jesus? Forget about all the others for just a minute, all the other invitations. And recognize that you yourself have been given to save the date. You yourself have been invited to this eternal banquet. And sometimes I'm worried that like the eternal feast that we read about in Revelation chapter 19 is gonna feel like middle school lunch. I'm gonna walk in and be like, oh, I don't know anybody here. And then I think like, no, 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 no. There's this like coffee shop by us. It's super cool. It's got this like all these eclectic like tables. And it's just a very weird looking place. It's like on the 50 greatest coffee shops in America or whatever. It's just this really cool place. But when I walk in there and I see all these different tables, I start to think like, I think that's what the great banquet's gonna be like. Your table's gonna be there. Your table's gonna be there. You're gonna have a table there. And it's gonna be this eclectic combination of all these tables. It's not gonna be like a banquet hall at a wedding that we go to where every table looks the same. It's gonna be tables from every nation, tables from every tribe, tables from every culture. And they're gonna bring all these different kinds of food and all these different kinds of fellowship. And it's like, and as soon as you get in there, it's gonna be like Cheers, the Cheers bar. 
And somehow, because we're all connected to God, we're going to all be connected to one another. And everyone in that cafeteria will know your name. That's the banquet that we're invited to. And so I want you, just before we wrap up today, before we close, I just want you to envision your table. Your table, what does it look like? We purposely bought a big table for our house in Connecticut. But then there's all these like little tables around town, right? Then there's like those weird tables, like the juice bar at the gym. Does that count? Like, will there be a juice bar at the banquet, Jesus? I hope so. I'm, I'm meeting people there. You know, I don't know. Well, what table are you thinking of? Are you thinking of this? We just went to a friend's house the other day. They had a custom-built coffee table, which was super nice because we could sit on couches. And they had this huge co- I think that table's going to be there. I think that's part of the glory of the nations that's going to be brought in to the kings. And when I think about that, I don't fear that I'm going to be sitting like I have at many weddings at an awkward table with like, you know, second cousins and the florist and me, the pastor who had an obligatory invitation. You know the table, you've been to that wedding. (laughs) No, 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 it's gonna be the cheers bar. It's gonna be the cheers bar. And no matter what table you land at, it's gonna feel like home. And it's not because of the guests there, it's because of the guest of honor, Jesus, 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 simply Jesus, the great physician who desires mercy more than sacrifice, who's building his kingdom, not his castle, who's building his kingdom one table at a time. And if you've got a table, you can build the church. So Jesus, today, we praise you and thank you. I praise you and thank you because these people of Connect Church are fearfully and wonderfully made. I pray that their souls would know that full well. I pray that they would know the great impact of their generosity, the great grace that they are in our lives. And I pray, God, that you would build your kingdom here in Washington, Illinois, one table at a time. That we would find rest in you. And that the joy that comes with being part of your children would be contagious. And that slowly but surely your kingdom would come here on earth. And that your will would be done here in Washington as it is in heaven in Jesus' name.